perfection. comrades <laughs> you're listening to last refuge of the incompetent uh i am cosmonaut gall and i'm joined by <laughs> oh i guess i'm cosmonaut moses <laughs> and i'm cosmonaut ted yo what is our theme for this week can you guess <laughs> <laughs> something, something kind of russia or russia adjacent ish talking fiction of the former socialist bloc of eastern europe uh, some, some from Poland, some from Russia. Uh, that's about it. <laughs> There's Estonian connections that will yes. come up later. Anyway. Yeah, we'll get to that. The, the long tentacled arms of the Soviet Union. And we're gonna, we're joined this week by a special guest, right? Yeah, we're gonna have our cinema consultant, Brendan, back on the show. Yeah. Because uh, he's seen the movies and you two haven't. Hey. Some, that well, is so, true. <laughs> when we were pitching this show to each other, I, I suggested Stanislaw Lem, Polish author, one of my favorite authors, and, uh, and he wrote Solaris, and that was made into a great movie by Tarkovsky. And so we're going to be talking about those and some other of Lem's works and some other of Tarkovsky's works. Yeah, and then Ted found a bunch of other strange movies that Noel <laughs> and I didn't watch. Yeah, true. I'm just going to have to listen to Ben and I talk about them. Uh, music. So, I mean, I started to look for stuff, and then I realized what, a lot of people have written songs inspired by Solaris. So that's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. I'm assuming you're probably going to pick some of those songs. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll see. There's an '80s synth pop band from Germany uh, called First Futurological Congress, uh, Ooh, named cool. after a Lem novel that uh, we read, or at least I read for this. So that Ooh, that. burn! Um, this is a serious I just burn. I don't remember that one. Um, but I know I did. I definitely cheated this week by suggesting a bunch of books that I have already read in the past ten years. Yeah, there was just some music from former Soviet republics, mostly, and Poland. I'd also like to play something from the Tarkovsky Solera soundtrack, which was made using a one-of-a-kind analog synthesizer just to go synthesizing nerd for a minute it's an incredible piece of machinery so the way it it works is it uh it's got glass plates covered in pitch and tar and you physically etch the waveform into the glass and then that's cool uh, and then the glass scans past a, a light and on the other side of the glass are some photodiodes and so that is how the waveform for the music is generated and there's only one in existence, and it was made well. It was made before the movie, and like left in a basement for many years in Moscow. And uh, and yeah, so the soundtrack for that movie, Solaris. It's mostly quiet, though, right? I-, I didn't watch some version of Solaris that had all the sound taken out, right? Like it's a very oh yeah, quiet it's all, I film. mean, it, the analog <laughs> stuff is very okay. ambient. <laughs> okay, kind of kind of creepy, pretty creepy. Deepest pool of deepest blue shall swim to you. Morning never waits for you, shall wait for you. And the stars. 
everybody! It's Gall again! As always, interrupting to remind you that if you would like to listen to the episode without all the music edited out, then why don't you go to our website, lastrefugepod.com, and it tells you all the neat ways that you can listen to all the music that we talk about that we can't play on a podcast for legal reasons. And if you don't care, please enjoy the wonderful sounds of Focus Bird. So, so who's um who is this guy Stanislaw Lem Moses? You I I didn't know about him until you told us about him, but you seem to be n- number one super fan. <laughs> uh, sure. Uh, yeah, Polish sci-fi author published a lot in the fifties, sixties, seventies. Did not go through his bio, but he was also friendly with the rest of the that age of uh, American sci-fi authors. Like he would go to the sci-fi conventions and stuff. He did not like them, though. I will tell you that much. <laughs> he didn't like them, but he—they were friends. But he didn't like them. That's the kind of friends they were. <laughs> they were friends. He just didn't respect them. Yeah, he yeah, had a yeah. lot of opinions on uh, American sci-fi. Yeah, we can talk a bit more about that later. But yeah, he's fun. Number one thing about him is he's hilarious. He's so funny. Uh, a lot of his humor is really pun-based, and so I still yeah. am unsure. I mean. All the stories were written in Polish, and then the English translations have to retain all this. It's an incredible feat of literary translation to keep yeah. all these puns around. Yeah, well, there's a, a work that we'll talk about in, in one of his short yeah. story collections that like kind of blew my mind. And it's like this complicated poetry yeah, algorithm. So there's a whole, somebody wrote a whole paper on translating standard yeah. It's yeah, there's worth reading. We'll put it in the reading assignment. For yeah. yeah, there's so Listeners, much work. Yeah, homework. <laughs> There's so much wordplay, and like in the Siberiad, it gets almost like Susian. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, it does. Oh, uh, I just read this one that he wrote that I'm like, is this is this is Doctor Seuss? This is literally <laughs> Doctor Seuss. So yeah, it is really hard to imagine like how difficult it must have been to translate. Or in the Futurological Congress, all the puns are about like drugs and pharmacology, pharmaceutical. Yeah. And I guess I feel like a lot of them must still work in Polish because all these drug names have their, like, Latin roots and so they must retain the same thing. But they're all funny. Yeah, and they all work with, like, drug names we have now uh, in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. I I imagine, like, a a lot of inventiveness is required on the part of a translator. Like, if you just can't... If, like, it doesn't work in Polish, you just have to make up your own wordplay. Yeah. Yeah. This is what this was a quote from that scholarly article that I very quickly skimmed <laughs> by Joseph Lero, Stanislaw Lem in translation and linguistic commentary. This was a quote by a guy by Robert Bly, and it says, "We know that we have not captured their original. The best translation resembles a Persian rug seen from the back. The pattern is apparent, but not much more." And like, I don't know if I've ever read an author more where I was like, "Oh my." god what kind of job the translator has to like make sure it like actually makes sense 
And the the first English translation of Solaris, which I guess Lem didn't like and people don't like generally, but it's the yeah. one I read. I noticed that that was from the French, not the Polish. Yeah. So it's twice translated. Uh, oh, wow. So no. I found somebody got uh, so fed up that there wasn't a direct Polish to English translation uh, that they translated it themselves. And so I found that a while, a few years ago, and read that one. And it wasn't dramatically different from mm. the other English version. He just retained a few things that were mysteriously changed. Like, one of the characters' names in the original is Snout. The German character is called oh, Snout. Yeah. <laughs> and then in the Polish to French to English translation, they renamed him to Snow. I have one tidbit about about his life, and it's because I'm playing up a stereotype here. But I love to learn about like what it was like to be Jewish in my family's from the Eastern Bloc. So what it when you know what it was like to be Jewish and to stay in Poland. And um, mm-hmm. so he was actually so they were like quote unquote had Jewish blood, but not actually in any way practicing. And this is a quote from him. During that period, I learned in a very personal practical way that I was no Aryan. I knew that my ancestors were Jews, but I knew nothing of the Mosianic faith and regrettably nothing at all of Jewish culture. So it was, strictly speaking, only the Nazi legislation that brought home to me the realization that I had Jewish blood in my veins, which is like a very common um, thing that happened to Jews around that time. They were like, I'm not Jewish. (laughs) The Nazis were like, yeah, you are. I mean, you'd be subhuman for being Polish anyway, but... <laughs> it's true. got two strikes against you now. Anyway! <laughs> um, also, apparently the only American sci-fi writer he liked was Philip K. Dick. And because Philip K. Dick was crazy, yeah. he thought that... Stanislaw Lem was a false name used by a composite committee operating on orders of the Communist Party to gain control over public opinion. And he wrote a letter to the FBI. And, uh, yeah, he he did not reciprocate. <laughs> yeah, poor Phil Dick couldn't imagine that there was a cool Polish guy who liked him. <laughs> yeah. And said, this must be a conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love that bit. Like, Lem thinks he's great, and Dick thinks Lem is not real. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's like the most Philip K. Dick story ever. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Yes, the book, Solaris, which I learned from the movie, is, is Soliaris. It is a book set in, in, in a near future where space travel is commonplace. Humanity is found, is just gone around looking for life on other planets and it hasn't found any and then it finds one planet that just has a weird kind of ocean it seems to move in strange ways and so they send a scientific crew to check it out land there and just see what's up with this planet it's very much like space travel in this book is a lot like botany you just got to go catalog all the different shapes of leaves uh, yeah and <laughs> that's what they're doing with the different planets the hook of this book is that it's uh, the planet is alive and that it has a sort of consciousness that it's trying to kind of connect with human consciousness, but it's an unbridgeable gap in some ways and the humans don't even re- understand it. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice philosophical book. And I mentioned last week that this book also contains a lot about like the scientific endeavor and how painstakingly tedious it can be. Like you just have to, it really is like staring at a leaf and noting down in your scientific blog book every single crease and crinkle 
and then comparing it to everybody else's logbooks on similar leaves, and then trying to find, well, where are the differences, where are the similarities? And I say this as someone who did physics research for five years. That is very much what it's like. (laughs) And uh, a lot of the book, I mean, there's several long passages where the protagonist is reading books on, like, the history of the scientific study of the planet, and because it's, like, resisted their understanding for so long, there's been, like, different schools of theory of leading theories on the planet that sort of rise and fall over time. Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole field of solaristics and people on the pro you know, wave the waves are intelligence and the pro waves are chaos side and all these competing schools of thought. Uh, there's one bit of it that makes it feel a bit like a precursor to uh, the three body problem, which is that like Solaris um, orbits two planets, uh, two suns a red one and a blue one, and they first start to figure out that the this ocean might be alive because all of their physics equations suggest that uh, the orbit of the planet should be unstable and it should have mm. fallen into one of the oh. suns long, long ago. And then they realize that, no, this ocean is doing something that keeps it in a stable orbit. Seems like it might have been an influence on the three-body problem. It also seems sort of... Um, Maybe it's a reflection on the Gaia hypothesis, which was probably first formulated around when Solaris came out. If not, then maybe it was an influence on the Gaia hypothesis. Uh, a lot of Lem's, uh, like he has a lot of short stories about robots and astronauts, space adventure ones. Then he has a lot of novels that are kind of weirder philosophical explorations of things. And they're all great. Highly recommend. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't read... Solaris before this week, I was commenting, complaining in a previous episode about how a lot of science fiction struggles to imagine truly different kinds of life or consciousness. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and Solaris does, I think, much better job than nearly anything I've read in yeah. that, like, the <clears throat> ocean life form is just, like totally different than anything on earth um well lem specifically said that he he deliberately chose a sentient alien ocean to make sure that you wouldn't like to avoid this anthropomorphism that happens yeah yeah it's like the things it does it's very very inventive all of the like phenomenon he comes up with that the ocean causes but then in the end yeah his conclusion is that no you can't know this oceanic mind (laughs) Mm mm-hmm Metal. Yeah, it pokes some human minds to see what comes out, but there's never any true, like, communication. I didn't read the book. I watched the movie, and then I read a bunch of interviews with Lem about how much he hated the movie. <laughs> and, and also, <laughs> yeah. like, about... There's a lot of interviews. He really wants to make sure that you read his work the way he intends you to read his work. And, like is mad if you interpret it (laughs) in a different way. And so with Solaris, the book, he's like, no, 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 it's not about, it's not an allegory for the USSR. It's it's (laughs) not about the relationships between humans. It's not about Freud. It's about not understanding first contact or like, you know, and you're just like, okay, all right. (laughs) Okay, Stan. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think I would, I would agree with him that I didn't think the book was really about any of those things, particularly, um, but it is kind of odd that he disliked the film that much. It's, 
I had seen the film a long time ago, and I sort of skimmed through it again before the show just to get a sense of, like, how it fit with the book. And he actually, Tarkovsky managed to get, like, most of the book in there. The emphases are definitely different. I mean, you don't see much of the planet stuff. I mean, these days with CGI, you could do all the crazy um, right. symmetrical mile-high formations the planet does. Uh, I don't know if that would make for a good film. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, Tarkovsky could really only do, like, oh, liquids are moving. <laughs> yeah. What is that? You don't get the the planetary effects, and you don't get a lot of the uh, scientific historiography in there. But generally, yeah, the film is pretty faithful to the book, uh, except for the, like, M. Night Shyamalan-esque twist ending at the very end, which is not at yeah, all in the book. That's not in the book, okay. No, not in Got the it. least. That's fine. I can forgive that. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, the book naturally, or the movie, it's hard to depict somebody reading a bunch of papers. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it makes sense that they don't explore that. And it makes sense that it explores more the the effect on the humans, the effect on the right. main character of seeing his dead wife reanimated. Right. Uh, because that's what movies are for, te- seeing two huge, beautiful people <laughs> each other. With, uh, uh, one beautiful person. <laughs> uh, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the man uh, was. Tw- I looked it up. Twenty six years older than than uh, the main actress, which does. I mean, which does work in the book because she. Yeah, he's ten. She died ten years ago. I get it. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> but uh, no, they're like. I mean, the they pick <laughs> good actors. <laughs> they pick. They pick good actors for like disheveled research scientists who are kind of losing oh, it. Yes. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Cool 70s space station design. Anyway, as someone who saw the film, I would recommend reading the novel. As someone who only saw the film, (laughs) I think you're fine. (laughs) No, I don't know. Alright, so I did read The Siberiet, which was funny to read because it felt... I watched Solaris and read The Siberiet at the same time, and I was like... One of these is not like the other. Like they just felt. I was like, wait, this is the same trajectory, or you know, comes from sp- spawned from the same seed. Yeah, it was just like fun stories, with a lot of wordplay. They really feel like uh, fables. Yeah. Um, yes. In absolutely. Their structure and kind of their style. So it was came out in 1965. It's short stories that focus on these constructors named Trurl and. Clapacious? Clapacious? Clapacious, yeah. And, you can um, say however you want. I think in our first episode, we quoted Ursula K. Le Guin saying, you can pronounce these names however you want. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You're right. Stanislav Lem was... would probably not agree. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, you would absolutely no. not agree. <laughs> oh, man. Um, and that's the difference between a male sci-fi writer? No. <laughs> I enjoyed... Uh, the electronic bard, where he makes a poetry-making machine, and the whole classic. premise of it is, how do you make a poetry-making machine? Well, you have to, like, spawn the entire, like, universe, because it's, like, a lived experience. Yeah, how experiences. do you make a poet? Well, you yeah. have to give somebody a life full of tragedy. Well, how do you yeah. make a life full of tragedy? Well, I guess you have to have a whole history of tragedy. Well, how do you make a history of tragedy? Well, I guess you have to evolve life. <laughs> if you wish to make a robot person from scratch, yeah. you must first invent the universe. 
Ted, did you listen to the audiobook version? Because that is no. the voice of Clapoutius. Clip- Clip- oh, they had somebody <laughs> doing a Sagan impression? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it literally is. Well, I cool. did not, but I'll have to now. And the coolest and weirdest part, like I mentioned before, is that he writes these crazy poems. Like, he s- sets these, like, parameters for these poems, and then... Yeah, the and other then, constructor is like, a poet machine, pa, I'll give it an impossible task. You'll have yeah. to write about these four topics and only use words that start with C or S or whatever. Yeah, and then the poet machine, I mean, the whole, all these stories are like, they build these machines, or Twirl in particular builds these machines and kind of, the machines do more than he anticipates in some sense. Yeah, um, they usually get out of hand. The poetry machine, like, they can't shut shut it down because... Everyone who goes to try to turn it off just gets hit with poetry that makes them just weep for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's just like that Python sketch, the funniest joke in the world. That oh, yeah. Dies laughing. And then the other one that I really liked, because it was short and sweet, was um, the Fifth Sally A or Twirl's Prescription, where it's this, like, world of tinkerers and something arrives in their planet and they want that thing to go away and they build these machines to get that thing to go away and none of these machines scare that thing away and so I think Churl shows up and he's like I know how to do this and then he just like builds like a bureaucratic like he like sends the a letter to the thing and it's, it's like you are being evicted and then he basically gets the thing to go away and he says I employed a special machine the machine with a big B so I was like oh it's bureaucracy <laughs> Anyway. I wanted to quote the um, the Lemon translation article. Yeah. About that poetry one in particular, and it's great because reading that is great because it, he has all the original ex- Polish examples, and he has the like transliteration, and then he has the Russian translation, and then he has the English translation. Mm-hmm. And the poet one in particular is is cool because you know in the original Polish it was you start with the letter C and the list of like constraints are different like write it about uh, write it about a robot and also involves love and tragedy and incest and all these other things right right and and then in, in Russian it's a similar prompt that he gives to the poet machines but with the letter K and then the English translation the prompt is different it's it's not write a poem about a robot it's write a poem about a haircut yeah it starts with s and the english translator decided to to address this challenge by writing a poem about uh samson that was all only using the letter s but the author of this article points out that that totally undermines part of the story because in the polish and russian polish original and the russian translation the challenge is to write a poem about a robot and the robot, the computer writes a poem where the robot is like a cool hero that seduces people. Right. And then in the English translation, there's nothing about that. And that's right. just another layer of like, well, the robot is a hero. Right. We don't get it. Right. What else, what else are we missing in English? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He mentions uh, another short story about not the robot crew, but the astronaut adventurer guy who goes to see someone who's uh, turns out it's like the head of the church and is just lamenting trying to administer religion to all these crazy alien species in the english translation they leave out a whole thing where that is a, really a critique of the americans <laughs> the english, the, english uh, yeah, the americans uh, how to 
how to defend the church against all kinds of crazy accusations. And he leaves that part out of the American translation because I guess he didn't want to offend the American church. <laughs> not, not Lem, of course. Right. Like, no, no. no. <laughs> also, this this doesn't matter in any way, but I noticed that like all the robots Churl and Kaposius build are six to eight stories tall. Yeah, um, <laughs> they're real big. This is how you fit all the vacuum tubes in. <laughs> yeah, <they're>, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of vacuum tubes. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the future Futurological Congress. I know we actually talked about it in the very first episode of this show when we were talking about Parable of the Sower and Philip K. Dick. Oh, yeah. La- a lot of layered realities. Hallucinatory <laughs> realities. Came out in 1971. It's like a black humor where it's funny, right? It's definitely funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, de- you definitely feel the Dick connection there since... Like big Phil K. Dick energy, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you are allowed to say that. Yeah, yeah, you, yep. yeah. It's not Trust, a way that I can stop. Write to the FBI about that. Uh, uh, but yeah, like three quarters of the book are a hallucination within a hallucination. Um, or, yeah, various hallucinations. Yeah, you know, it's difficult to tell how many layers deep you are. And it's got a, a character that he uses a lot, right? Ijon Tiché? Tishi? Ijon? Oh. Um, anyway. I think in Polish it's Ijon. Oh, really? Ijon. Ijon. Tishi. I think. So, yeah, Futurological Congress, it's, you know, written in 1971, and it has a lot of that, like, Early 70s, population bomb, the earth is getting overcrowded, fear sort of stuff. The world is actually set in before the hallucinations start. The Futurological Congress is like in Costa Rica in a hundred foot Hilton Hotel. And there's, I don't know, tens of billions of people on the planet. And they're starting to use various like hallucinogenic chemicals as forms of crowd control. And then... Mm -hmm. This futurologist, who's Ion Tishi, um, Ion, uh, then because of these chemicals, hallucinates a farther future that's even more overpopulated and in which, like, basically everything is mediated through various, like, mood altering and hallucinogenic chemicals. Um, yeah, the world, the physical world is so harsh and awful that you couldn't experience it directly with your physical senses because you would just be. It would be unending suffering. And so luckily, it's been mediated with all these different kinds of hallucinatory and uh, analgesic yeah. pharmaceuticals. She eventually figures out towards the end, takes the the red pill. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, on, in the way, and then it turns out he's just been uh, hallucinating in a sewer this whole time. <laughs> um, uh, but on the way, like, yeah, it's like the number of different drugs and the effects they have is really really inventive and many of them are quite funny but the whole i mean the whole thing being like a futurologist hallucination of the future feels like it's kind of a satire of the idea of futurology or science fiction because i mean science fiction is sort of like futurological hallucination so it sort of seems like it's 
mocking or at least um, very skeptical of, like, the idea of prediction itself. But, I mean, Lem also seems to have been something of a futurologist himself, as well as mm-hmm. obviously being a sci-fi writer. So yeah, it's hard to tell, like, how much he's, like, actually predicting a trend towards chemically mediated unreality and how much she's just kind of poking fun at all of his having as much fun as possible as he can with that idea Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. the futurological congress it feels sort of surreal even before all the hallucinations start because um i mean there it's this academic conference of sorts uh but it's going on while like there's revolt in the streets of costa rica because overpopulation, not enough resources. So, like, a session will be going on and, you know, an explosion will happen on the street and they'll just sort of continue along uh, with whatever they were doing. And, um, I don't know, that combination of, like, obvious crisis going on and feigned continued normality felt um, kind of more... It felt like a better prediction than, like, any of the actual specific concrete mm-hmm. details did but that feeling of yeah. crisis and normality at the same time yeah pretending I'm through feel, it feel it out. <laughs> you say are you saying something about this show that we're doing in the middle of uh <laughs> not specifically hey, check out our youtube page <laughs> <laughs> no i think um, we're cool yeah we're we're the coolest <laughs> do, do you i mean America was doing bad stuff in Central America in the 70s. Do you think he was making any veiled reference to American imperialism? Yeah, I think there is a little bit where that happens early on in the book. There's some intercepted shipment of weapons from the U.S. Um, So yeah, it's definitely... It's not subtext. It's just in the book. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. Uh, let's switch. We've been talking about Stanislaw La- Lem. Stanislaw Wow, I think, also. Stanislaw! I'm butchering it, wow. It's a great language that none of us have any facility with. Uh, let's switch from talking about his works to another book. Roadside Picnic by two brothers, the Strugatsky brothers. Mm-hmm. This book served as the basis for the Tarkovsky movie Stalker. I'd say that the movie Stalker is very different from the book Roadside Picnic. Much more different than between like the movie Solaris and the book Solaris. But they also <laughs> did write it. The yeah, the, the, the Strugatsky brothers wrote the screenplay. Right. And they yeah. thought and they thought that um, it was a great movie. Uh, unlike <laughs> Lem hating, <laughs> hating uh, Solaris. Also, they're Jews. <laughs> Just <laughs> yeah, A plus. A plus. No, no, no. A double plus. <laughs> Roadside Picnic and Stalker, they're both about a strange a zone. That's what it's called. The zone. Where unexplicable phenomena keep happening. There are vortices of energy and uh, it's it's dangerous. It's it's like you can go... And I think in the book it's like a meteor crash there. Is that right? What is the, the genesis of the zone? So there's a character... A character early on is talking about how some scientists proved that the impact of the six zones on the Earth is, like, what would happen to a sphere um, if something was, like, shot out of a, a cannon at a certain place 
near some star. Yeah, Star Trek would call all this a space-time anomaly. (laughs) So it seems to have been some kind of projectile or something unexplainable that came yeah. from some sort of alien civilization. But that's that's never explored. The, the book is really about the effect on humanity of, well, now there are some strange zones on the planet where weird stuff happens, and people can go in and, like, scavenge these incredible artifacts that are very powerful, seemingly infinite sources of power, and it's kind of, it's unclear, like, what are the limits? How powerful can these things get? Or what possible wishes could they grant? And so the book is about, yeah, some schlubs trying to cash in on finding these weird artifacts. <laughs> and the movie is more about just some schlubs wandering around for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah philosophizing. It sounds the, like it's a book, Tarkovsky movie. <laughs> in, the, in the book, Roadside Picnic, it's like there's a whole organized crime sig- about like smuggling stuff in and out of the zone. The main protagonist seems to have like grown up in the town that just happens to have been hit by whatever created the zone. And then there's an official institute which sort of regulates entrance into the zone, has scientists who study it. But then there's all these, it's also sort of like a, you know, like a gold rush town where a bunch of people come from elsewhere to try to cash in on sneaking into the zone and taking things out and selling them. And usually awful things happen to them. Yeah, it causes weird mutations, like the crime boss's daughter is... Totally covered in fur or something like that. Yeah, well, the that's the the main stalker, his daughter, who they call Monkey. Yeah, oh, she's the fur. Uh, no, the crime boss. It ter- eventually turns out uh, that there's this golden sphere that in somewhere in the zone that um, fulfills wishes. The crime boss gets these like two perfect children by wishing for them from oh, the golden yeah. sphere. They're like perfect, but also kind of awful. This is my one contribution to our conversation about roadside picnic. <laughs> Are you ready for this? Keep going. Theodore Sturgeon <laughs> wrote the preface preface to the American edition. Theodore Sturgeon infi- inspired the name Kilgore Trout. Because his name is a fish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> To bring up another author we've covered, the edition I read had an intro by Ursula K. Le Guin. She quite liked this book. That's cool. Um, I liked it. Someone a few years ago asked me for book recommendations, and I just read this one, and so I recommended this one. And then she came back a week later and said, I didn't like it, but thank you for recommending. (laughs) (laughs) So that was nice. It was nice that she read it. Yeah, Red Sea Picnic feels like Solaris thematically in a lot of ways, because... A lot of the book ends up being about how the zone seems to be ultimately unknowable. Like the artifacts they find there are precious, can be precious because some of them are really useful, like infinite batteries that you can plug into your car. But nobody seems to get any closer to understanding how they work, which leaves leads uh, one of the some scientists in the book to hypothesize that the stuff in the zone is sort of like an ant finding like a bunch of junk that somebody left at their mm-hmm. roadside picnic um, um. on the side of the road, and that's the name of the book. The movie also, the Tarkovsky movie Stalker, has some kind of environmental-ish themes to it. Also, in, in real life, it it's, it gets those themes applied to it because it was filmed on this river that was downstream of an industrial chemical factory. And several of the people on the crew, or even Tarkovsky himself, got cancer and died of it years later. 
you could track to spending so much time wading through industrial waste. This was <laughs> right. in the 70s. After that, Chernobyl, I feel like the Chernobyl accident, at least in my mind, they, they got projected onto those things. Like when I right. first saw Stalker, I thought about that. And then I, when I looked it up, I was like, oh, this movie was made before that even happened. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so I was skimming through it right before... Yeah, to establish sort of the emptiness of the zone, there's lots of shots of these, like, derelict tanks. Yeah, whereas the book takes place in Canada? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or there's there's references to, the like, the Royal Air Force, um, and it's not in Europe, so it seems like it's in Canada. But there's also reference a reference to a character wanting their child to, like, be president someday, which would make it not Canada or a future Canada where they've switched to a presidential system or the Strugatsky brothers just didn't understand the Canadian (laughs) system of government. Possible. I don't know. Or I guess that character could have been from somewhere else and has come to Canada. Anyway. uh, So yeah, whereas the book is set in Canada, the film is obviously shot in Russia and definitely seems to be incorporating a lot of Russia's past traumatic history into mm. this idea of the zone. <laughs> Have any of you happened to play the video game Stalker? S-T-A-L-K-E-R? I've like heard of it, but I have not played it. So yeah. it's kind of, it's based on that. That ties us together. So the Stalker, Call of Pipiat, like it is set in the post-Chernobyl town, and you walk around and there are weird vortices. It's based on all of it. It's based on the book and the movie and the Chernobyl accident. Yeah. Pretty good video game. It has it's the typical, you're, you've got a gun and you have to go do missions but it's still a good video game and apparently stalker like the english word stalker is used in the original russian book um it's oh, not yeah. like a translation it was like this word they knew from they something. deliberately borrowed it from it's, english yeah it is a weird title it's a weird term to use it's because i was it's not confused. just wanderer or searcher or explorer it's yeah. stalker yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. A, there's an afterword by the surviving Strugatsky in the edition I read, or he talks about um, the long process of trying to get it published, um, and these, like, censor-slash-editor-slash-publishers who didn't like it and then liked it and wanted this taken out and that taken out, and I guess the original version was very censored, and this new edition restores the original text, but mm-hmm. um, I guess they got the... One of the brothers read this Rudyard Kipling story that he ended up translating into Russian, uh, but there's a character named, like, Stocky. Uh, so like, that's... like, Hefty? Like no, like, beans, like, beans S- <laughs> uh, it's like S-T-A-L-K-Y, and that's where they got the word stalker um, from, and they put it in the novel. So yeah, cool. it's a transplant, weird transplant from Kipling. But yeah, anyway, I really, I quite liked Roadside Picnic. I think it's better... If I had to recommend the book or the film, I would recommend the book, and it honestly doesn't take that much longer than the, than watching the movie. So. Oh my god. Yeah, the stalker's pretty long. So, w- welcome, welcome to the show again, our resident film dude, <laughs> <laughs> Brendan. Cinema hey. consultant, I think that works. Hey. <laughs> Cinema consultant. You might remember Brendan from our Zardoz episode. <laughs> I don't remember me from my Zardoz. <laughs> uh, Felicitous Negroni week to you all. <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking about Tarkovsky, two adaptations, the Stanislaw 
Stan Stanislaw Lem books, hilarious. And then uh, the stalker adaptation of Roadside Picnic. Those are probably the two most famous Soviet sci-fi films in the West, but uh, yeah. there were others. We'll talk, <laughs> we've seen some of them, and we're going to talk about it. So I don't have much to say. I watched Solaris, Solaris, and I liked it, but I also was confused. <laughs> and I didn't enjoy the, like, w- the woman character very much. She rubbed me the wrong way. But the one thing I did enjoy was that the actors that played Sartorius and Chris are not Russian, and they're dubbed over by Russian actors. And then there's a lot of them talking to each other, and the whole time I'm, like, giggling to myself, like, they're just dubbed over. (laughs) (laughs) This is just an animation right now. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up, because another adaptation of a Strugatsky Brothers novel that they also wrote the screenplay for is uh, Dead Mountaineers Hotel, which was made in Estonia in 1979 and filmed in Kazakhstan <laughs> for as a setting for a unnamed Western country. But the main author um, was, as the main actor, is Lithuanian. So he's not, like, all of his lines are dubbed by is it some the same- Estonian actor. Is that the same actor? No. No. That wasn't... Okay. Yeah, he's... I mean, he's just a Lithuanian guy. He's not even, like, a famous Russian actor. (laughs) So you have an Estonian movie by two Russian novelists with a non-Estonian elite actor (laughs) filmed in Kazakhstan. Uh, If I remember, it's kind of spectral. I mean, it's supposed to be, right? (laughs) Yeah, so it's... um, It's this movie about uh, a cop gets a call to go to this, like, alpine skiing hotel, uh, thinking there's a cr- been a crime. And when he gets there, the hotel owner's like, oh, no, no crime here. <laughs> and then there seems to be a murder that happens. And then the murdered person, sh- like, shows back up alive. And it turns out that uh, the murdered... The, pe- the people who have been murdered are the- these robots um, owned by aliens who've come to the planet. And when they originally came to the planet, they got, like, tricked by mobsters into uh, helping them form, like, perfect schemes to rob banks. Um, So now they're trying to escape the planet via this alpine hotel, and they're being chased by the mob. So it's kind of a a neo-noir mixed with, like, a... Uh, old school 1950s sci-fi message about like being peaceful to aliens. Uh, it's been like re- re-released on Blu-ray, so looks it's great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> recommend it if you can find it, and it's only 80 minutes long and not three hours like a Tarkovsky film. So, dude, it's got that going for it. I was wrecked. Brandon, what did you uh, get out of any of these movies? And did anything strike you? And you said, I gotta talk uh, to the crew about this one. <laughs> uh, it's been a while since I've seen any of the ones we've discussed thus far. I've actually never completed Solaris. Um, <laughs> what struck me about them? Um, just that they don't, overall, don't follow the same... I mean, I think that's what's most fascinating to me, is what's possible when you're not following a, a conventional Hollywood or, like, Hollywood script cycle or hero's journey narrative arc Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know if that means that 
the philosophical investigation is any more or, or less profound. Um, in some instances it is, but in others, like some of the films that Ted and I watched recently, um, they're kind of lighthearted, but then without the plot structure holding it together, it's just kind of like this weird series of events <laughs> that, that, that doesn't really ask as serious science fiction or, you know, speculative questions. Do you think that that's just the trend in that era of films come like that, that, that you didn't like to get a film produced and made, you didn't necessarily have to have this, this stock structure to it that people could understand and be like, yeah, I'll give you money for this or. <laughs> right. If it's sort of approved, like by committee or, uh, I was wondering about, uh, Oh yeah. Planet Burr, which was a Soviet production from the early sixties. Okay, uh, cosmonauts on Venus. Okay, cosmonauts <laughs> on Venus. Like, if you're not necessarily competing on an international market per se with like U.S. films, yeah, I was wondering about that and whether or not they were like in conversation. Were many filmmakers being able, you know able to see kind of genre fiction, or was it or did it filter in through international festivals or in kind of semi-secret or what or other foreign films? But um, yeah, even when I was watching Solaris, I was like. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of money that went into making this film. There was, like, some interesting, weird visual effects. And I was thinking to myself, like, wondering, like, how, where that money came from. Because somebody has to give you money to make a movie, right? You can't just be like, I have this great idea. (laughs) It's kind of funny if you do some Wikipedia exploring about films that were made specifically for, like, uh, the Eastern Bloc or for communist, you know, import-export within communist countries. They don't measure box office necessarily. It's like number of tickets purchased mm-hmm. or right. like acquired. So it's right. a different metric, but maybe a little more pure. Depending and on also, the yeah, and I guess if like your your government is literally financing your film, they're not. Yeah, you already own that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Cosmonauts on Venus is like a pretty light adventure where. Some cosmonauts go to Venus and find evidence uh, that, like, their life has, like, they, they get there and they immediately start shooting these weird, like, reptile pangolin creatures. Um, <laughs> and then they find, like, archaeological evidence of humanoid civilization and decide that life has been thread- spread throughout the solar system for a while. There's also a great robot named John, um, <laughs> who's... Just kind of like a big bulky idiot. Um, <laughs> See, but, I thought I thought John was coded as a British robot, so maybe, I, think, I don't know why we determined that. But <laughs> we did talk about that. Of course, we watched. No, it. I think I think in Cosmonauts and Cosmonauts on Venus and in Ikari XB One, like um, they are like international crews from some post Cold War future. Yeah, everyone's European, but they have non-Russian European names. All of them seem to have Swedes on the crew. I think John's owner is British, so John is as well. But the the robot in Cosmonauts on Venus is sort of a... I'm going to say the word precursor for the fifth time in this episode. He's kind of reminiscent of uh, the robots from the culture, because he insists on being referred to, like, politely. Um, <laughs> like one of the one of the characters is calling to the robot on the radio and another character says like no no you have to address him like formally then the character asks the robot like where's your master 
Like, I have no masters. Slavery is forbidden in the Constitution. What? <laughs> sassy John. Except he is. Does, does You just said he has an owner. Uh, oh, I guess maker. He's like the oh, engineer okay. guy. Robot keeper. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, John the robot uh, puts on a little tune. Like, he's got a built-in record player or a radio or something, which is kind of cute, but also kind of like a tongue-in-cheek jab at, like, maybe... Uh, the sort of weird consumerist uh, external Western idea of creating or solutionering a solution for a problem that doesn't even exist in creating like, this absurd <laughs> consumer choice. Uh, yeah. If the Brits made a robot, it'd probably play the Beatles. Um, <laughs> around 1962. But are you talking about the connection between, or what connections there were between Soviet sci-fi and kind of Western mass market? Yeah. Um, stuff and cosmonauts and venus is sort of interesting and in that it went the other way uh b-movie producer roger corman made several movies by taking like footage from this from this movie and then adding like english-speaking actors and like sexy venusians to make <laughs> a different movie that already had like the special effects filled in did he just buy the rights to the movie that's a good question presumably yeah. Richard Corman had also tried to work in this, like, make films in the Soviet Union at mm. some point in his career, which didn't end up working out, but, yeah. Mm. Um, and it was did interesting, because, you... like, two, like, Curtis Harrington worked on the, the, one of the two adaptations, so Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet was overseen by Curtis Harrington, and then Voyage to the Planet of Prehistoric Women was uh, directed under a pseudonym by Peter Bogdanovich. It's <laughs> <laughs> like a, yeah, a serious art director. Got his start into Roger Corman. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Ted, did you guys watch Obioba, The End of Civilization? Oh, uh, yeah. We watched that last night, uh, kind of. <laughs> Not only did we watch it, we survived it. Yeah, yeah. I just like that name. What? What? Uh, what's it about? Uh, so it's it's a Polish movie from 1984. It's very it's pretty grim and very blue. Um, just like all the scenes are blue lighted. Um, oh, it's in a, I thought you might. <laughs> uh, it is not. You you watching some snuff films. <laughs> well, not especially sexy. I mean, there's sex in it, but it's not sexy. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> but it's set in a, like, after a nuclear apocalypse where there's survivors in some underground city under a dome. And um, I guess the people who sort of run it have created this myth of an arc that's coming soon to save everyone, sort of to make everybody's lives more manageable because they just they expect that this won't last that long uh so the protagonist is kind of a mid-level bureaucrat who goes around kind of giving people cans of food for favors and like solving minor problems (laughs) but he learns that the dome is becoming unstable which is going to let in like freezing temperatures and radiation so he he gets a plan to use this he hears that there's a hangar somewhere with a plane in it, and he wants to, like, actually make an arc to get people out. When he gets there, he finds this guy who's, uh, the currency of the dome is called an arc, and he finds mm-hmm. out that this guy has just been pressing these little metal coins out of the plane metal. Um, it's like, oh, you never would have gotten anybody out, um, out with that thing, but I make all the money here. Like, this is how things work. Um, 
And then everybody everybody still ends up getting the impression that the Ark is coming, and they, like, stampede their way out of the dome. And then they die. <laughs> End of film. <laughs> <laughs> what is a Obioba? Is that explained? I don't remember it. Is being... that in Polish? It's My like... understanding is that uh, from a like a, a, a profile that I just very briefly read was that uh, both this film, directed by Peter uh, Shulkin, and the subsequent film Gaga were both titled by his infant daughter. <laughs> 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 And then after the colon, it's like, oh, this is what the film's about. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I'll be Obar. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, particularly bleak film, but it was interesting because Ted, sort of in continuation of our Zardoz talk, it was like there were different, it seemed like there were influences of different films that maybe we identified or as like aficionados, but I had wondered how specifically it was inspired by some of these other kind of like 60s, 70s U.S. sci-fi films. How how accessible were those films to Warsaw Pact countries? Yeah, by 1985, it would have been interesting. Uh, not sure. I mean, 1985 is pretty accessible, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, books, of course, like, you know, you can distribute them via Samizdat, and there were very various... What did like, you say? Via what? Some is that. It's like you're gonna Russian, have to explain that to me. It's the Russian term for like underground copies of written material, uh, and like I know in the Soviet Union, there's different ways you can make copies of um, vinyl records. Like you could right copy the grooves and other materials and make like cheap cheap copies of Western records. But uh, yeah, I mean before VHS tapes and CDs. It would probably have been pretty hard to get get a lot of films, but directors yeah. might have gotten like lot actual opportunities to go to international film festivals, right? And stuff. Right. So they probably would have seen more Western films on the average person. I just want to remark on Obi Ba how like it just seemed like such a like bald faced criticism real existing socialism, a, an overarching structure that's supposed to protect everyone that was designed, uh, but that's ruled by hidden bureaucrats and that mm. the average person has like no kind of access or is, is told is another thing and that everyone believes that there's this next level that's going to be achieved if only the dome holds out. Uh, right. And if we keep fixing it, like we'll eventually arrive at this like magical arc. Well, what's that term... Uh, that hypernormalization that film is based upon the whole idea that it's a social it's a term that comes from socialist uh, Russia this idea that the bureaucrats you just keep telling yourself that everything's okay everything's okay and trying to maintain that it didn't yeah it didn't I don't think the term hypernormalization existed in Russia but it's um, it was created to describe it by a Russian right. guy who went on to become an anthropologist in Berkeley. But yeah, it's interesting that Obioba came out the very same year as Sex Mission. The English translation yeah. is Sex Mission. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and they came out the same year, and they have the same lead actor. But Sex Mission is about two guys who get frozen and then wake up in like an underground future ruled in like where there's only women, and it's, it's kind quite of- a. That's like a. 
Brendan Fraser and Polly Shore buddy comedy. Yeah, you know, it's a really, like, <laughs> sounds very Bill and Ted. Like, <laughs> yeah, and these two kind of, like, schlubby Polish guys go around this future feminist utopia dystopia. They're just, like, having gross gender attitudes about everything. But it was... Herland. Uh, <laughs> it was yeah. very successful at the time, and I think is still the most successful Polish film of all time. Uh, like, people loved it uh, in what's, Poland at the time. What's the, like, message? Like, those guys are good, those guys are bad? Um, it's been a while since I watched it, but from what I remember, they end up, like, convincing the, the women that, like, eh, you need us guys. <laughs> no, it, I remember it being kind of gross. Okay, <laughs> like, gotcha. Yeah. It, not not exactly a Polish herland. <laughs> no. Speaking of, like, government-funded arts, so Peter Shulkin's immediate film before Obioba was, like, immediately revoked from circulation, which is, like, again, one of those things where it's like, wait, you invested all this money in, 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 into this, uh, you know, an already strained economy, and then it's it's going to be revoked, but it was, like, an update of H.G. Wells' uh, War of the Worlds, I think, but kind of, it, it sounded almost like a... a like it incorporated aspects of they live, of just kind of like a scene through a society that's ruled by like television. It seems to have been very unpredictable when a work would be found ideologically correct or not. In that afterward about the publication of a Roadside Picnic, um, I guess they tried to get it published in a collection of three works: Roadside Picnic, Dead Mountain News Hotel, and another one. And like over the eight or nine years it took. The same censors like, demanded that all three of the works get removed. Mm. Um, like they just kept changing their minds about which ones were okay and which ones weren't. Well, the Sanislaw Lem talks about how he really disliked his early works because he was writing for to be approved, and he was writing this essentially like communist propaganda that he didn't didn't enjoy, didn't find nuance nuanced enough. Yeah, he was writing, like, Stalinist-era socialist realism, basically. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And now, Brendan, do we want to talk about Kin Zha Zha? Uh, uh, we can talk about Kin, Kin Zha Zha. There's also Moscow Cassiopeia, uh, which ended in a cliffhanger for us. Oh, yeah, that was a two-part film, and we didn't watch part two. Um, <laughs> Teenagers in the universe, or teens in the universe. Yes. The following year. Um, yeah, it's about a crew of, like, young pioneers who get picked for this interstellar space mission. It's never, I guess, I guess that they have to pick young people, because, like, it's, it will take decades, and then everyone else will be aging in the meanwhile. Yeah, it's goofy. A lot of good, surprisingly good, like, zero-gravity effects in several of these films. Oh, um, yeah. Somehow... Yeah, Soviet filmmakers figured out a good way to do low-budget, zero, convincing zero-G effects. So, How do you do zero-G so, effects? Very carefully. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed like they were always staged in such a way that they were they had their back away from a bulkhead. It was like blocked by a curtain or something. But mm. gotcha. it seems fairly seamless. In Barbarella, you just have Jane Fonda lie on the ground and then sort of <laughs> crawl around. <laughs> Chroma keyed in like a big plastic tub or whatever. Yeah. 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 With 2001, they just built a huge rotating set 
Yeah. <laughs> it created gravity. <laughs> yeah. Then. <laughs> but yeah, I liked I liked the idea of like a this kind of brainy young pioneer, um, like Soviet young pioneer who gets like his science fair project idea gets like Gemini croquet contest into reality. <laughs> And yeah. he, and all, he and all of his friends and the young pioneers get to go to outer space because they're young and can't withstand the ravages of time. <laughs> and there, there one like less scientific friend who didn't get didn't make the cut on the mission uh, sneaks on board and insists that like his super glue that he invented will help him yeah. out. <laughs> He's like constantly getting things wet on Earth, which is super annoying. But he also invented super glue. Uh, yeah, like unsol- insoluble super glue. And I was, I was just thinking about that. Um, the like their friend, the the young woman who kind of like James, has that James Carville moment of like outer space. Like, don't forget the environment, <laughs> which would have been, I mean, probably a reasonable criticism. It's like, why are we spending all this money on, on going in outer space with this problems here on Earth? The, the image of uh, a Soviet female James Carville <laughs> is A 14-year-old kind of Russian girl <laughs> is also James Carville. The spirit, the spirit, uh, <laughs> the spirit I'm, of it. I'm not saying that she was <laughs> Oh, that's, that's, style. that's what I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> Amer- Armenian Mary Moffat. <laughs> any any final thoughts about this films that you guys want to recommendations what would what was your favorite if you know what kin Zsa Zsa is about <laughs> <laughs> yeah so kin Zsa Zsa is a russian film from 1986 um where the oh god <laughs> it's yeah i think it, it requires further study is this, a, is this another request that will go unanswered by our <laughs> by our myriad of fans? <laughs> I mean, it's these two guys who go, they accidentally get transported to this barren planet in an entirely different part of the galaxy. And they get followed around by these two kind of imbeciles. And they're like looking for different doodads with ridiculous names to fic to get them back home. The closest we could get to a theorized to theories that it's about, like, the absurdity of trying to find things on the black market. <laughs> um, <laughs> when you like, can't just buy them, but... The exquisite I'm... absurdity of doodads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, ha- it kind of has some of that Lem, like, wordplay stuff, but sort of more in the Siberiad, like, Susian way, not the... Mm. But yeah, also kind of a bleak, bleak film. Not as bleak as Obi Oba, but... Yeah, kind of. You definitely feel when you're watching it like this is from a cultural context that I do not understand. Mm. <laughs> it kind of has like the it, some. I've heard it described as like, well, oh, it's like the Soviet Star Wars or whatever. But that's just because it's a science fiction movie that takes place on a desert planet. <laughs> but it's more kind of like if if Monty Python and the Holy Grail was just a book <laughs> of chess problems, <laughs> <laughs> which is extremely. Russian, like that would make sense. Yeah, um, yeah. That, that is a that is a that is literally you just exp- yeah. That sounded like the most Moses. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, a lot, a lot of these films because they were made in the Soviet Union, they're not under copyright, and you can just watch the whole thing on YouTube. I know that's true of Kinjaja. 
although it's also like on Blu-ray or whatever. We will link to it on our website. <laughs> Great. Slash our new YouTube page. Check out my new YouTube channel. <laughs> like, subscribe. Like, subscribe. Oh my god. Oh no, not this lady again. Yep, that's right. It's Gall reminding you that if you've gotten this far into the episode and you're still wondering where all the music we talk about is, well, you're listening to a podcast. And so we had to edit it all out. But do not fret. Go to lastrefugepod.com and you'll find all the great ways that you can listen to the music that we talk about. And then you'll feel fulfilled and your life will be complete. Okay. So yeah, all, all these films are just, they're in two categories, either like lighthearted fun adventure into space or grim film about a desiccated and like end of the world and <laughs> ideological uh, mystification. <laughs> I hear it's lovely in springtime. <laughs> <laughs> or, or Estonian sci-fi noir. That's the third oh, category. Yeah. yeah, that one I have a good had, like, f- disco like Oh yeah, there's some great some great music tracks in there as well. I have a good friend that works for an Estonian company and like goes to Estonia a lot, and uh, it seems like a weird place. (laughs) I want to go. You say you want to go? Oh yeah, (laughs) they're Finno-Ugric but different. Yeah, their language is weird, right? (laughs) It's related to Finnish fairly closely. Um... Oh, so you'll have a leg up in that department, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't speak Finnish. Okay, well... uh, That was Film Corner, I guess. That was Film Corner with our... Well, what did we call you? Our film czar? Our um, uh, cinema consultant? Cinema consultant? We can't call him a czar. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take uh, cinema academic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, also these films yeah, are full like of accommodations. Uh, here when I'm needed and I'm here when I'm not needed. <laughs> so we um we have so next week we'll be talking about killer plants, uh, Attack of the Killer Plants, which was pretty exciting. And uh, our another guest return, Marissa. Marissa Wilson will be here. Uh, but if you we do and now we're adding on to our pile of requests, if you know what that film was about. What was it? Kinjaja. Kinjaja? K-I-N K-I-N apostrophe D-Z-A apostrophe D-Z-A exclamation mark. So if you are the maker of that film, if you (laughs) were involved in the production of that film, (laughs) and you're you're listening to this radio show... (laughs) I mean, you um, can just know what it's about. Okay, you're right. Yeah, we got uh, an email. Moses... What's our email? Oh, yeah, what's I our email? I thought you said we actually received an email for once. I'm like, that's incredible. Oh. <laughs> nope. So our, uh, reach out to us at the last refuge of the incompetence at gmail.com. Yeah, and we also have a, a, a voicemail, 805-253-3091. 805-253-091. We have received exactly zero voicemails. So. I mean, leaving voicemails is crazy. Nobody does that. 
Next week is Plants. Uh, what's yeah. the book? David Triffids. <laughs> David Triffids, Semiosis Duology. So it's Semiosis and I've read both of them, but you guys probably will not. So the two of them are Semiosis and Interference. Oh. <laughs> All right, Ted. Do it. And Day of the Triffids. And then some movies. There's so many crazy plant movies. There was the whole Attack of the Killer Tomatoes cartoon show. So yeah, we'll spend most of the time on that. Uh, Feed Me Seymour, what's that? Yeah, you've got two Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, yeah, uh, Little yeah. Shop of Horrors. Uh, the original produced by Roger Corman. Oh. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that's it. Oh, yeah, lastrefugepod.com. And and now we have a YouTube. Because <laughs> Gall got it. Spent some time with iMovie today. Anyway, if you're if you don't want to hear us talking at all, you can literally go to our YouTube and just listen to playlists of our of the music that we play. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Moses. Uh, yeah. Uh, How do we say goodbye? Thanks, again for coming, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. Sleep well, and compateers, and companots. Funky time, companots. Funky time, companots. Avanti. See Science fiction. <laughs>